Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Army Infantry veteran and the man behind Transcend, Ernie Colling. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Ernie's early life, his journey into the military, some of the worst days in uniform, his transition, the world of contracting, the spectrum of factors that influence our hormones, testosterone replacement therapy, the importance of blood testing, mental health, the Transcend Foundation, 7X, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ernie Colling. Enjoy. Well, Ernie, I want to start by saying thank you to Brendan for uh, connecting us and thank you for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. No, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And uh, Brendan's an awesome person to be working with. And uh, he had nothing praise to say about you. So, you know, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, well, we got to spend a pretty interesting 10 days crammed in a plane together. So we'll uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you this morning? You're finding uh, me in Auburn Hills, Michigan, which we're right next to the Chrysler World Headquarters, you know, the office building. And this is my executive office. Now, you said Chrysler was close to you? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, Chrysler, Dodge, Ram, the the automaker, one of the big three, you know, it's big to the uh, Detroit area, you know, born and raised here. Um, so when I found the, the office space and it was right in proximity to it, it just had a great feel. So, um, you know, we were quick to get at least and get the team in here and it's just good to come in every morning and to look and see an icon, you know, something of legacy, you know, within our, our culture, you know, society, I wanted to be close to that. Well, the reason I asked, and it's interesting that you were born in Detroit, um, you know, when you look at some of the problems, and we'll get into it, but, you know, mental health addiction, some of them, the origin story is an industry leaving, and Detroit is a perfect example. Um, what are you seeing now? You're a pretty, um, you know, clued in business leader. Is the American car starting to come back to our grounds again, our shores? Yeah, I think there is um quite a bit, especially in this area, um, in the EV world, uh, specifically, um, Chrysler and Ford and, uh, GM, GM mainly, you know, they're, they're investing in infrastructure and facilities and that's creating a lot of jobs, um, for construction and, you know, engineering specific types of things. Uh, you have suppliers and vendors, um, you know, rapid prototyping, all sorts of things that tie into that. So, um, in Oakland County, where this is all located, uh, there's a strip called Automation Alley, and we're right in the heart of it. Um, so it's great to, to see 
buildings that were empty, you know, filling up again, um, you know, lots that were destroyed. There's construction coming in, you know, they're, they're rebuilding old uh, factories, you know, and revamping them for new lines. So, I mean, in this area, it's pretty prevalent that it's coming back. Um, I can't speak for everywhere else, but uh, it's great to see that here. Beautiful. I hope that kind of finds itself in Detroit because I know the, the firefighters in that particular city are extremely overworked and underpaid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, important note with us, you know, Auburn Hills and the area, like people say Detroit, is, we just, it's the easiest geographical location, but we're we're probably about 40 minutes north, northeast of actual Detroit, the city itself. The city itself has also come back quite a bit and downtown area is beautiful. Um, I'll be down there tonight with uh, friends and family and a few others that we're uh, hosting from company. Um, so, you know, it's a great place to go to, but uh, there's still some problem areas, you know, the civics, they're still underpaid, overworked, that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, we're, we're close enough to say Detroit, but we're, we're not necessarily exactly in Detroit. Brilliant. Well, you mentioned Detroit, so I'd love to start at the very beginning of your lifeline. So tell me exactly where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay, yeah. Um, so let's see, three brothers, two sisters, um, two brothers and one sister surviving. Mom and dad been married for just about 50 years, high school sweethearts. Um, you know, still married to this day. I uh, was born and raised in Oakland County, Michigan, uh, right on the border of Oakland and Macomb, which is a real blue collar area, very blue collar. All the trades worked there. Um, going back to the auto industry, especially in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, even mid to early 90s, the neighborhoods and the way everything was done, it was like strategic, you know, your, your line workers were here, right? And then your your managers were here and your white collar people were here. There was, you know, a very class division of uh, where people lived, uh, even in the same communities in proximity to where the, um, the plants were and all those other things. So uh, my dad actually didn't work in the auto industry. He was in the computer industry. Um, he was a Harvard engineer, uh, which basically meant that time he was like fixing ATM machines and, um, you know, anything that had to do like electrical engineering. Uh, and it morphed over time into something that was more, um, you know, desk job type of uh, orientation. Uh, but, you know, in the beginning, it was more of a skilled trade than it was, you know, a white collar kind of thing. It over time morphed into it. Um, but the neighborhood back then, yeah, it was... Um, a real blue collar, stick together, tight knit. Um, you know, the kids knew who everybody was. Um, if you weren't from there, we knew real quick. Um, you know, grievances were resolved with uh, a quick fist. And then, you know, you pulled that guy up and, you know, dusted each other off and, you know, everyone learned their lesson and we went back to whatever we were doing, you know, sandlot football or, um, you know, riding bikes on the trails and all sorts of things that Michigan kids do, you know, pond hockey, all that. Um, interesting enough, though, um, when I was really young, I was about five, and I had my brother was four at the time. And, um, you know, same thing. We just, as soon as the morning sun hit, you know, we're out the door, summertime, you know, playing with friends. Um, you know, tragedy struck. Uh, my brother was actually killed um, by a, a truck. Uh, on his bike and it was in close proximity to me very close 
so obviously it's tragic as a you know a young boy to um to lose your know, sibling right there in front of you and in that manner uh damn near broke my family apart um the whole neighborhood you know could feel it could feel the weight of it um no one felt real safe anymore you know and it, it wasn't because of you know criminal activity or anything like that obviously it was just a the notion that that can happen anywhere you know when you're careless and, and don't pay attention um too many factors in there to go back through and and see why or how but there was a massive impact and it obviously impacted my life um you know really young you know that uh for the next god seven to ten years you know you know we struggled as a family you know there was lawsuits and you know all sorts of turmoil and pain and healing that was going on so growing up like that it was a bit rough um you know at, at some point in time it started to mellow out uh high school time you know i discovered sports i got into wrestling i was pretty decent um you know that kept me for the most part out of trouble but i did find enough trouble uh especially hanging out with some of the guys i was hanging out with eventually I got in enough trouble that I uh, actually got expelled from high school. Um, a year later, I was allowed back and, uh, you know, I went to school and finished my time, but um, I'd have to go that extra year to, to graduate. I didn't want to do it. So I dropped out. So yeah, I'm a high school dropout. Um, took that time and, you know, just manual labor, construction, that kind of stuff. But in that time frame, I was out on a job and, um, my sister, she was 24, I was 18 at the time. Um, she was hit and killed by a Trump driver. So, you know, I lost my older sister and my younger brother. Um, so I've been the the youngest, oldest and middle, you know, child in my family, you know, which is, you know, an odd experience, um, oldest now. But, um, you know, after that happens, it kind of changed my perspective on where I was in life and where I wanted to be. So I went, you know, I got my GED. <laughs> I uh, literally just picked up the book, studied it for a few weeks, uh, paid to go take the test, took the test. You know, they, they let you know like 30 days later whether you pass or, or don't pass. Um, you know, got the mail in my parents' house. I'm like, oh, cool. Uh, I have a GED. Decent. <laughs> so <laughs> it's I wish I had put, Yeah. I'm like, oh, well, I guess it works. Um, so I'm like, okay, what am I going to do now? Um so I just, you know, joined the army. They saw me coming, you know, right there, young, you know, former athlete, you know, kind of a troublemaker, trying to fix some things up. Um, and uh, they 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 got me on an infantry contract, and uh, you know, it was you know, all of them from there on out. But it was probably the best thing for me. Um, I just uh, I enjoyed the challenge. I really enjoyed the mentorship, even though it, it could be harsh at times, but it was exactly what I needed. And I needed to hear it um, from that type of uh, environment, I guess. I don't know. I just, I was receptive to it differently than I was throughout with parents and, you know, other friends and teachers, coaches, uh, it, for whatever reason, for me, it stuck. It was different. Um, you know, I was in and out. I did my, you know, one time enlistment, got it as a corporal, um, you know, Iraq was going on. You know, at that point in time, it was late 2004 for me, and I went right over and uh, I got a security contract job and I uh, was doing convoy security up and down MSR Tampa, which is, you know, central to Iraq. 
And um, the company I was with wasn't a very good company. Um, but when you're, you know, 20 something years old and they're offering you 10 grand a month in cash to go and do something and you really don't have any other job skills, seemed like a really good idea at the time. Um, it wasn't. Uh, fortunately for me, I had a, a former squad leader that was on a different contract uh, with Enscom. And uh, we were both at Biop, uh, Baghdad International Airport. Um, and it was like a massive, um, like U.S. military installation with different little installations within it. And uh, he had kind of heard over the net that there was this, uh, you know, civilian convoy, you know, PSD company, and they were getting their ass handed to them uh, just north of Taji because uh, we got hit by an IED, uh, lost our fourth vehicle. Ironically, uh, the person that died in that vehicle was a seat I was supposed to be seating, sitting in. We uh, when we went and picked up our uh, cargo, our trucks, and we were coming back before we actually got in the vehicles and, and uh, you know began to SP. One of the drivers ate a silicone packet from the MREs. It was an Iraqi driver, so he got sick as crap. And I think he saw it was in the back of the truck and actually didn't want to drive it because they you know always look underneath the tarp, and it was you know RPG rounds, grenades, you know explosives things for the Iraqi army that we were dropping off. Um, so he got sick. Um, so that meant we had to reconfigure everything because one of our American drivers actually had a CDO and, and could drive a, a semi. So, you know, he had to go in that truck. We reconfigured. I went from truck four to truck three. And, um, you know, that was that. So, you know, by just one small event, it saved my life. Um, you know, craziness. I didn't even realize at the time that that was so significant. Um, but, you know, we, we got back out on the, uh, the road and you know, a couple hours later, we're halfway back just south of uh, Balad, you know, just north of Taji. And, um, you know, First Cab was there at the time and they had everything blocked off. And um, they you know, kind of told us that this is a choke point, you know, most likely ambushed. You know, we know about this ID. There's probably more. Um but, you know, when you don't have air cover, night vision, you know, all the other things that uh, you did when you're in the military, you know, the decisions are a lot different and they make it a lot quicker. And the truck leader at the time decided, you know, we were, we were going to press through because um, we didn't want to be on the road um, any longer with this kind of uh, cargo. We wanted to get it dropped. So we pressed forward and uh, sure shit, um, you know, we get about a half a click down the road and then you know, boom, uh, the fourth truck is hit, split in half, uh, killed the TC where I would have been sitting with um, the rest of the guys. And then, uh, which was real odd for the time, they engaged us with a small arms fire and it was more of an ambush than anything else. So, you know, four trucks, one's down. Truck three, we had to turn around and, you know, kind of get in between the kill zone, you know, fatal funnel where, you know, those guys were at. Uh, we had a building and it had kind of a fence on either side of it. You know, it was probably about 60, 70 meters, you know, just, you know, in front of us. But the semis and the rest of the trucks, you know, they they were getting the hell out of there. You know, they were, they were getting them out of the way. So, you know, we started covering fire and trying to move wounded behind our vehicle. And I remember... Two shots in on my M4 and click. <laughs> yeah, rather inconvenient time for it to stop working. Um, yeah, I did everything I could. And, you know, finally, uh, you know, I had no choice. Deadline the weapon. And there were some guys creeping around uh, like a small utility building. Yeah, we had a secondary, so I was fortunate for that. Um, 
it was a Glock 17. So use those 45 rounds really quick. And uh, then just picked up, you know, weapon on the ground, you know, just the same thing anyone else would do. Turns out later there was a damn bullet lodged in the barrel of that rifle. Oh, God. So, so if you fired, it would have exploded in your face. Yeah. Yeah. So twice now, uh, unbeknownst to me, you know, I'm injured or death. And I, and I, you know, you escape it and you don't even realize it at the time. Um, you know, as soon as we're getting low on ammo, and it's probably only been, you know, three minutes, you know, it felt like three hours. And uh, the two other trucks came back blazing and we had uh, uh, PKMs in the back with Kurdish Peshmerga as our, you know, secondary. And they were rolling pretty heavy and they came in guns blazing. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden that uh, got them to at least break the contact with their ad and fall back into their building. And, you know, we were laying waste to it. Um, don't ask how civilians had an AT4, but we had one. And, um, you know, we pulled pins and, you know, it was, it was armed, hot, cocked, ready to fire. And, um, the Kurds realized that one of their guys had been killed. And this particular group of, um, Peshmerga hadn't been hit yet. You know, they, they had firefight experience, but they hadn't lost anybody. They hadn't had, um, you know, one of their tribesmen killed. Um, so when they saw that before, we could fire off the AT4. They ran through machine gun fire straight through right for the front door, kicked it, fuck, kicked it the fuck down and went in there and we were getting ready to go in. It was only maybe 30 seconds and they came out with 10 guys, you know, hands behind their head. They took, they took prisoners. Um, so we zip cuffed them, hooded them, had them laying on the ground and uh, we were still going to blow the building just to, you know, make sure, and uh, the Kurds not speaking enough English, you know, they're like bombs, you know, like, don't do it. We go in there and look, it's all HME. It, it was, it was a, a IED factory. If we would have hit that, we would have been just vaporized. There's a number three. Not, yeah. <laughs> number three that day. Um, so, you know, we're waiting for um, Medivac to come in, comes in, picks up wounded, picks up, you know, the KIAs, gets them out of there. Um, you know, we take radios, everything sensitive out of the truck, uh, that was hit, you know, we regroup and then, you know, push on down to Taji at that point. <laughs> so get just inside the gate, you know, that's where the trucks are going to stay. Um, you know, go to use the wire, take a piss. And right before I put my boot down, number four, freaking anti-tank mine that was sitting there and, uh, <laughs> I was like, Jesus Christ, this day is just getting worse. It's not like, like, I, I don't know at this point, like, what's what's going on here. So, you know, I kind of pointed it out. And they're like, oh, shit, yeah, uh, we probably should do something about that. More than likely, it was inert anyways, you know. Um, but still, just to, you know, have that happen mentally, the things that go through your head there. But we rolled out. Um, went through the tip of the Sunni Triangle. Uh, at this point, it's night, um, and we're just we just haul ass right back through. Um, everybody's tired, angry, been a long day. So, if any pot shots came off, I mean, they got more in return fire than they they would have thought for, because um, we had no problem stopping and and saying hi. We got back, the rest of the thing, and, you know, no problem. It was a place called Camp Bristol, um, out by the, the tower area. 
you know, we got back and, um, you know, I got to the, the talk, you know, turned to my gear and uh, my squad leader was there. The guy I was referring to earlier because he had heard everything over and he's like, you're not staying. Like, he's like, just resign and you're coming with me, you know? And I, I was hesitant and he's like, this crap is going to happen every day. Do you want to do this? This is why they're trying to pay you 10 grand a month. You know, this isn't the same, you know? And I was like, oh, all right. So I just, you know, thanked everybody there. And I, and, uh, I just said, you know, for me, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go with somebody I trust, you know, I'm not here. So grab my bag and got in a truck, a Hilux and drove to the other side of Biop. And, uh, you know, actually turned out to be an intelligence contract, uh, uh, INSCOM, Intelligence Command for the United States Military. And they had a um, very different contracts going on at the same time in, in that area. But um, I went and I met his, his boss and, you know, talked for about an hour. And they're like, okay, yeah, we're going to, you know, send something back to the States and get you an offer letter, everything. Uh, just go home. You know, uh, we'll actually help you out and get your ticket back to the United States. So, recycled back out, went back to the U.S. Two weeks later, right back down to Georgia, right back through CRC, right back over to uh, Iraq. Uh, but this time, uh, instead of doing security work, you know, it was intelligence support work. Um, and I actually got put in the uh, IZ, the International Zone of the Green Zone, right next to the Green Zone Cafe after it was blown up. So... You know, it was it was remodeled. That was kind of nice. But, um, you know, we're right behind the old Bath Party headquarters uh, where FOB Honor was. We actually weren't in the FOB. We were actually outside of it, a place called the Golden Dome, which was like a uh, essentially their compound. And um, I wasn't sure exactly what I was supposed to be doing yet. No one had really mentioned it. Uh, logistics was said. Something about recruiting was said. Um, but I really wasn't. 100% sure what I was going to do. And uh, they were recruiting um, local national linguists for the most part to work with U.S. military as interpreters. Uh, they were gathering biometrics. And they were doing, you know, some other things that were going on there. And, um, you know, so I was one of the admins in the office going through things. And uh, I noticed that there, there was a desk where all these files had just been thrown. And I was like, what are these? Like, oh, those are the ones that got killed, <laughs> either with their units or, in, in most cases, honestly, the family or wrong people found out that they, uh, you know, were working with us and they were, you know, killed. So there were supposed to be benefits paid to them due through um, the U.S. government and a few other entities. And uh, no one was really calling, contacting. At this point, they didn't know what happened to their family member, a lot of them. So talking with, you know, a few of the uh, leader, leaders in the company and what was going on, um, you know, they just didn't have the resources at that time to investigate, you know, go through, get the paperwork, make the contact, do all those other things. But they, they really did want to, um, you know, just how I grew up and what I experienced, I didn't think was right. So I asked if I could do it, you know, as an additional duty at first. And so they let me work with one of our U.S. hired interpreters, you know, to interpret everything, you know, get all the paperwork documentation. You know, they were calling Iraqi police. They were calling uh, up, you know, units. We were getting you know, everything we could to kind of get uh, the standard thing you would need for, um, you know, a claim with, uh, you know, an insurance company. In this case, it was U.S. Department of Labor. And uh, we, you know, over time, 
you know, took care of, you know, several hundred of them, hundreds of them. Um, whether it was getting the wounded out to Jordan um, or whether it was, you know, notifying Mexican and having them in, giving them a cash statement, and then start the Department of Labor paperwork. They quickly escalated to a full-time job once they saw the, you know, the amount of work that had to be done. And at that point in time, in 2005, things were getting more kinetic. You know, they were increasing. So they needed um, somebody to deal with it because, you know, they would dump them off at the, the hospital. And then the U.S. military, for the uh, locals, they were like, yeah, they can stay a night, but then they got to go. I was able to work with the command, you know, and basically under the uh, LOIs that we had, kind of get them to have a little bit more of an extended period of time. For those that weren't, like, severely wounded, you know, we would we would get them out if they were stabilized. For the ones that were severely wounded, and one in particular that was hit by an IED, and he happened to be um, the interpreter for one of the uh, – battalion commanders for an MP company or battalion um, hire, you know, we uh, did everything we could for this guy, but he had a TBI. He was in a coma. You know, it really wasn't looking good. He needed long-term care. You know, there's only so much you can do in a combat support hospital. So, you know, I had to work through the Department of Labor, through our company, through the U.S. State Department, through the Iraqi Interior Ministry, through every hoop you could think of to coordinate an ambulance flight from Lebanon to be allowed to land at Baghdad International Airport to wait for us to take him there from the IZ, which means I had to get permission to use a medevac helicopter to take us there from the U.S. Army. And I had to borrow their life support systems in order to get him transported. Got all that somehow worked out and I was like, all right, good. He's going to go. And, uh, you know, the mission was about to start. They were getting ready to do their thing. You know, I was signing some paperwork and I was getting ready to leave. And, uh, you know, the liaison, it was a major. She was like, where are you going? I was like, I don't know. I assume this is good. Oh, no, you're going with them. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not letting you go with this equipment and everything else. You're, you're going with them. So she talks to pilot, whatever. You know, I've had my stuff gone. At this point, it's you know, about four, four thirty. It's getting late. You know, sun goes down there pretty quick. We get in and we can't find the uh the plane that flew in from Lebanon. I have no idea where it is. So I'm on a Iraq, you know, piece of crap cell phone talking to somebody in Dubai who's talking to somebody in Lebanon who then picks up a thriad to call the plane. <laughs> to tell them to start hitting their lights so we can see, you know, who they are. And eventually we were able to identify the plane. The problem was there are two sides of the airport, the civilian Iraqi side where these guys landed and the military controlled side where we were. And the pilots weren't really allowed to go over there. Um, obviously, you know, there was no other choice. So the pilot looks at me, he's like, you have five minutes from the time we hit the tarmac to the time that we're gone with or without you. I don't care, but we're, we were gone in five minutes. And, you know, he was definitely timing the issue. So we lift off, go back, um, get right up as close as we can to the, you know, plane. Their door drops, they bring out their equipment, and the doctor that was there was, oh, hi, you know, he's trying to talk. Like, <laughs> There's no time for this shit. <laughs> TikTok. You know, we, yeah, we have five minutes. And honestly, 
the sun is about to go down. If this bird doesn't go off before the sun goes down, you're not leaving, you know, because there are no flights, especially civilian flights that have to dart. Um, barely, but barely got it done. And Hyder was not a small dude. He was, you know, 6'6", you know, 240. He was getting him crammed into that plane um, and, you know, taking Muffman or putting him on and doing this, you know, outside, you know, on tarmac was an interesting experience to say the least, but it, it all got done. Um, I just remember getting back on the helicopter and it was, it was winding up and they took off and they're taking a turn to go back to the uh, IZ and I could see the plane just taking off, you know, the sun just about the set. I was like, holy shit, we actually did it. And they flew him into Armand Jordan and got him into a hospital there that the Department of Labor pretty much designated for these types of uh, injuries uh, with the Iraqis. And, um, you know, he was there for like six months and uh, his family went there and was visiting him. Um, his father was a correspondent for the L.A. Times. Uh, so it ended up getting a little bit of press, to say the least. But um, something happened and he ended up getting an infection. And I remember I found out Christmas um, that he passed, you know, after all of that. Now, that, that was pretty defeating, too, because that was like the one thing out of all the, you know, shit and crap, you know, all the things that had happened, it was like, that was going to be the one good thing uh, to end that tour. Um, but, you know, we did everything we could. So, you know, it was what it was. You know, getting back to the States after that, um, I got lucky and the um, operations side in the U.S. Uh, picked me up uh, for a job. So, newly married, just married. Um Moved out of Michigan, never been out of Michigan uh, like that, not not to like live outside of the military. And then, um, you know, starting a new job, all those things, realized I moved a little bit too far away for the, the D.C. area. You know, 25 miles doesn't seem far, you know, it, it, at least it didn't at the time. But it ended up being like a two-hour commute each way because the traffic and all this other stuff was miserable. Um, but... I think, you know, for the next uh, six years, you know, it was pretty much op tempo was just the same there as it was, you know, in theater. And, you know, same thing was on a Mexican team, knock team. You know, if we'd have casually, I'd go to Dover, you know, and, and start coordinating to have them move over to a civilian morgue, whether they're viewable, getting the personal effects, coordinating, you know, the hero's flight home escorting the remains, you know, getting them to the local funeral home there. And then at the same time, keeping everything in contact with the um, the people that did the notifications actually with the family, because as soon as the notifications were made, they stayed with the family until, you know, we were able to get their loved one home. And then usually, like I said, I stayed with the loved one until they were returned home. But, uh, you know, that could happen at any point, any time. So I always had a bag packed. Even then, there's always something constantly, you know, ready to happen. Um, finally, a, a few years later, you know, I had a, a daughter, you know, so a new dad, all these other things. And uh, Afghanistan was starting to warm up a little bit. And I really wanted to try again. You know, I wanted to go back. I wanted to get the contractor money and all those other things. So, um, you know, my wife let me. So I moved off the Iraq desk to the Afghanistan side and, um, 
you know, I was there for almost 20 months, you know, on that rotation. You know, I had uh, two vacations home, like after nine months and then after another six months after that. But uh, it was a long, <laughs> a long one. That one was a little bit different position. Um, it, you know, it, it was a little bit more hands-on. But, uh, you know, I was in a Little Gar Wardak area, which is south of Kabul, about, you know, I'd say 70 miles and uh, that battle space was, you know, a good, a good warm one. Um, but uh, spent all that time there and uh, went back again. Headquarters picked me back up. Uh, so I was an operations manager there. The whole time that was happening, my TSSCI was processing and it finally came through. Um, so I had some options I didn't have before. And uh, there was another agency I wanted to go to, a new agency, uh, the Joint ID Defeat Organization, guys that were making bombs and, you know, hunting them down to find them, uh, specifically the COVID, which was the world's, at the time, the world's largest fusion intelligence uh, area. And they had people at the location in the U.S., you know, doing all sorts of things. And then people downrange all over the world, you know, on the other end of that mission. So I was lucky and fortunate enough to get into uh, like the J33, which was the current operations. And I was part of the general staff. So all the plans, policy, you know, essentially all the planning, future planning, meetings, you know, dignitaries, all that stuff, everything that came through, you know, we were part of and knew and prepared and, you know, learned a hell of a lot there, especially about leadership. Um, and just it was a whole different type of experience. Um you know, and that was pretty much the end of the the military and contracting piece. You know, I was there for a couple of years, did a couple of rotations with them too. And then, uh, you know, that was when I went to the private industry side. So that's uh, early life to end of civilian contractor military life. You know, so. Well, I want to go back to the initial loss of your, your brother. Um, and then obviously you have another one, you know, 20 years later. How did you and your family, when you look back now, what, what were the the effective ways that you processed some of this grief, and were there any you know any negative ones now when you look back? Well, at first we didn't know where to start. You know, I remember the the first Christmas because it happened in June. You know, and that six months was just an entire blur. You know, I started school, school age kid. You know, just you know two months later. So obviously, you know, they have you in therapy as a kid right away, you know, to try to process the trauma. But, um, you know, my sister and my mom, same thing. They were processing it. Oh, yeah, obviously, it was still miserable. Um, but my dad just shut down. I mean, he just shut down. Uh, he would, he went to work and he came home, but he he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want it brought up. He didn't want to think about it. He just, he couldn't, it, it, it broke him pretty, pretty hard. So that caused a lot of tension because, you know, my mom wanted to see it was a family, go to family counseling, do all those things. It was a point of friction. And that's when they decided that they wanted to do, you know, a lawsuit over the company because it was a commercial truck that actually hit them. And, you know, once that started, you know, lawsuits are expensive. And if there's not a lot of money to go around at that point, then, you know, there's even less. And when there's less and there's not a lot, that, that makes things uh, very difficult. 
you know, I remember for probably the next five or six years, you know, my entire time through uh, elementary school and even at the beginning of uh, middle school, like there was no school clothes shopping or anything like that. I got my, my cousin's hand-me-down clothes or, you know, I only got new shoes at like the discount store, you know, and that was like one pair a year. And if those things were ripped apart and I duct taped them back up, it was, you know, it was what it was. So I think that was an added stress that as a, a young person, I wish I wouldn't have had to experience. Um, I think it just added so much more to it and pulled everybody in such different directions in the family that it, it, it was damn near inspirable. But, you know, we all made it through it, came back on the other side. And during that time, my parents, you know, they had three more kids. You know, there was almost back to back to back. So, you know, quickly it was, you know, more like being a brother again and, and kind of, you know, focusing on the new siblings and all those other things. So I would say the things that were done right, you know, it was kind of, it was good to have that, that family, you know, aspect back to it, joy, you know, playfulness, all those things, um, you know, as a brothers and sister got a little older, you know, my dad started to warm up a little bit and um, thank God, you know, even to this day, he's seems like he's getting softer every year. You know, he's, you know, a lot better. So I, I, it, in time, everything worked out just the way it was supposed to. Now we kind of touched on this right before we hit record. Um, you know, when you're able to process trauma somewhat it can actually drive you towards certain careers and there's so many people on this this show who wore uniform for for their profession for their career that actually had quite significant trauma in their early life now you know you could argue addressed i think that becomes almost a superpower um unaddressed obviously it still leaves that kind of fractured foundation that we're now you know piling other stuff on as we actually do our job when you look back now, how did that loss so early factor into your journey into the military? Oh, it was definitely a superpower because uh, it was addressed. It took a lot of time. Um, I mean, basically, my childhood and adolescence, you know, in and out of therapy the whole time because as your brain develops and emotions and hormones and all those things change, and that leads me into something when we talk about transcend, it, uh, you know, it was just restarting all over again, you know, you know, getting back to being able to process what had happened because it was so bad to this day. You know, there are things that happened overseas and things that I dealt with um, that actually registered less of an impact than that did. You know, I think part of that was because of my age and part of it because of actually the, uh, you know, how dramatic it was. But um yeah, I think going through all that just made it so I could focus on what was important at that moment in time. And I was able to block out the actual event that had happened, you know, the emotions that were going along with it. It allowed me to kind of process things a little faster, a little quicker, and be able to be there for other people, um, especially, you know, having that empathy to see the things that I was saying, you know, with not being able to get people their benefits and things like that. So I, you know, between the empathy and the capability, you know, it definitely set me up for the path that went up. Yeah, and I can tell the empathy side, not only what I know now about, you know, how you help with 7X, for example, but also just in this journey, caring enough about, you know, the Iraqi allies to take care of their families and, you know, some of the other things that you've done. 
I've said this a lot as as a medic. I think the thing that haunts us firefighters and medics and, and police officers is not so much the, the grotesque scene of someone being killed. It's the wails of the people left behind. So you had your <laughs> really shitty day, near-death experience times four. But then you have, you know, these death notifications. You you literally, you know, are going to see these grieving widows and widowers. Um that is now compounding onto some of the trauma, you know, as you said, even though it was addressed, it was still there as well. Um, what were the highs and the lows of your own mental health as you progressed through adulthood? Highs and lows. Um, euphoric, just to get back from those deployments um, with a, a, a sense of accomplishment, regardless of how arduous it was and mentally taxing. Um, I felt like I built something at last because, you know, when I was there, that that position didn't exist and somebody wasn't taking care of those people. But when I left, you know, somebody was coming in to replace me and to continue that on and make sure that it, it continued that as long as we were there and that was happening, that somebody was going to be, you know, on watch and making sure that, you know, the loose ends were tied, the families were contacted, taking care of the right things were being done. So that meant a lot to me. And then, you know, like I said, getting married, um, you know, the woman I love, I'm still with her 17 years later, you know, and be able to start our life together and have that excitement and actually have a job, um, you know, behind a desk instead of, you know, doing some of the other things that were going on. It was, uh, it was important. Um, it gave me hope that I could do something in the future. So I guess that's a, a good way to put it. The lows, um, a common story for everybody, you know, I think is the self-medication, right? And then, you know, wanting to keep it private, not wanting to complain, knowing that I was alive and many others weren't. Um, it gave me that sense of I, I shouldn't speak on any of these things. I should just kind of keep this to myself. And it didn't work out so well. Drinking got heavier, 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 heavier started to affect relationships and um you know that went on for years it wasn't like it was like i realized it was something good and and then all of a sudden you know it stopped you know i pulled back for a while and you know it was when my daughter was born and then um you know i went and did another deployment which is basically two and then came back same thing right back to self-medicating, going into the cycle, you know, back, you know, over again. And I was in a rotation at this point with the uh, COIC, you know, Task Force Paladin downrange, just back and forth. And that just continued to add, you know, stress and everything else. So I found myself in my early 30s, you know, and at this point I was really going out the wrong path. Once I walked away from the the private industry with you know paramilitary or you know contracting government contracting intelligence all that crap you know i didn't have that weight sitting on there i i realized at that point like okay i need i need help you know i, I gotta do something so i got uh through a process called emdr and i you know i swear by it you know this was back in 2014 2015 so it's you know while ago, you know, before some of the, you know, psychedelics, microdosing, all these other things, you know, were out there. This was, you know, kind of the top of mind. And honestly, I've gone back once or twice since just to kind of get a tune up, so to speak. And for me, it worked. 
Um, you know, it really calmed me down, the anxiety, you know, the fears, you know, that fight or flight response that you're kind of stuck in, um, anger, all those things. It's not that they just went away overnight, but it allowed me to be able to deal with it. It allowed me to, you know, recognize when it was starting to happen or what was triggering, you know, made me self-aware. And then I honestly didn't want to be that way. So it took a lot of effort too. But, you know, I think eventually I was able to really put my demons where they belonged and, you know, go on and live a normal life, at least for the most part. Well, I've heard a lot of success stories about EMDR, especially when it's specific events that are, you know, beneath the thing, the thing beneath the thing. Um, and this is, I think, of an important conversation. As you mentioned, psychedelics, obviously a lot of people are having success with that. A lot of people that were on the plane with us were having success with that. Um, but it's understanding as a toolbox. And I think this is a message that's not really relayed very well to military and first responders is, you know, you have counseling, you have um, psychiatric meds, and there might be an application for those meds for bridging a gap or someone who's got extreme schizophrenia or something. Maybe they do need medication as well. But you've also got equine therapy and these these retreats and psychedelics and AMDR and, you know, all these other things. And so I think that gives a lot of people hope because they were like, well, I tried counseling, EAP, and that person fucking sucked and I'm never going back yeah. versus, okay, well, there's a lot of other different types of counselors. There's some that have worked with military and first responders that you need to be seeing, but then there's also this toolbox of other things. And it might be EMDR for this one thing, but then it might be meditation for another thing. And you start kind of layering them together to find your own version of therapy. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think the most important part about that is having somebody that knows you that is, you know, checking up on you and continuing to push you to, to get into uh, to one of those therapies, right, to break the loop. Important, But the most important addition to that is just having somebody that knows you, buddy check system, whatever it is, kind of pushing that uh, person who's suffering to go and, and find their tools and, and, and start to utilize them. You know, and, and to keep encouraging them, even when uh, they're not necessarily working very well, uh, that way, you know, you do find what that combination of things are that works because there are so many different things out there that help. Not everybody's the same. You know, yeah, you might fail in the first one. It might not help as much, but if you have that support and you're continuing to be pushed, you know, it, you know chances are you're going to end up in the right place. Well, we're going to talk about Transcend in a moment, but um, Brendan was also telling me about, you know, he's hitting some bullet points to help me, you know, understand the things because obviously you've got, you know, things online, you've got interviews, but then I'm always intrigued from people that are close to someone, you know, what what are the, what's between the lines as it was. And uh, he mentioned that in the journey to Transcend, Transcend, as you transitioned out into, you know, the corporate world, you'd had some other companies, you know, that hadn't succeeded so which i think is a very important part of the business journey so talk to me about that you've been very successful in the contracting space you transition out what's that journey to transcend look like um so as i transition <clears throat> transition just i can't say that word today <laughs> as i as i left that space and went into the private industry um i ended up becoming a like an it program management software development implementations of erps that kind of stuff um but, you know, it was just planning, just like I had done in the past, you know, taking complex pieces that were integrated and, you know, plugging them in the right places and then making sure 
the people that need to be doing those things were doing them. But I was learning a lot about e-commerce and social media and how that would drive revenue and, you know, how to basically run a business. Um, so I was intrigued by it. At the same time, um, you know, I was trying to get back in fighting shape, so to speak. And, you know, my wife was competing, you know, she was a figure competitor, uh, which is, you know, like bodybuilding. Uh, she looked amazing, still does. But uh, I couldn't, I could not keep up with her. There's just no way. I tried everything and I was getting pissed that I had a coach, you know, I'm on a diet, kill myself in the gym and nothing is happening. Uh, finally, he's like, oh man, I, I think you, you need to go to a clinic and, you know, I have some blood work done, get some things checked. You know, so I go to my primary care, talk to him about it. We do blood work, you know, but they don't do any hormones. They just do your standard panel. I'm like, okay, well, everything looks normal here. I'm like, well, I'm still feeling these symptoms, right? I'm tired, lethargic. This won't happen. You know, the libido, you name it, all the low testosterone, you know, symptoms. And, uh, you know, he's like, well, how about I send you to an endocrinologist and, you know, they can look and see if there's something that's not on this panel on one of their panels. Okay. So, you know, I get to the endo and, um, this female doctor, she looked at me and she's like, uh, you were probably a long-term steroid user. You probably crashed your test. I, uh, I don't help those people. I don't, I don't work with them. I'm like, okay. Uh, I've never touched a steroid. Um, you know, that wasn't my thing. I'm not in the bodybuilding. I was just trying to get back in shape and wanted to lose some weight. Um, but uh, she wasn't having it. So I was stuck. I went back to the coach and I'm like, this is what happened. You know, this took two months, by the way, to get through. I'm suffering the whole time. Uh, he's like, oh, no, I meant to go to this other private pay clinic down the road, um, you know, that specializes in this. Oh, well, maybe you should have told me that first. But, uh, you know, so I go in there and uh, Doc takes one look, gives me this you know, lab panel, go through and get everything done. Turns out my test is like 90, you know, and it should be, you know, the four or five, 600 range. Um, and my estrogen was like 80, which is more than double what it should have been, you know, which explains why I was crying in Disney movies. But, uh, you know, got all that straightened around and all of a sudden the, the work that I had been putting in, it, it just so quickly changed. I mean, within, probably two weeks, you know, my sleep was better. My cognitive ability was there. I didn't have the brain fog. My libido was back. Um, I was dropping weight. Um, I just, I felt great. Uh, and that was continuing. And then COVID hit and that clinic shut down. Um, one of the guys that worked there uh, actually had talked to the doc and um, essentially was going to buy their book of business. And, you know, they were good at the clinical side of things. You know, they were kind of like a, a patient advocate where they walk them through the process and help them determine what was probably right for them. Since everything was private pay, you know, it could be expensive. Um, so we found a different physician and a financial backer and, you know, like a business development guy. And they were all good in certain areas, but no one really was like, the one that knew how to file the articles of incorporation, you know, put a financial system together, business processes, contracts, you know, all the fun stuff. So that was me, um, you know, and, and I wasn't even supposed to be a partner at first. I was just like a consultant they were going to pay. And uh, they were decided, nah, we'll just, you know, I'll split it four ways. And, uh, you know, we kicked it off. Um, I don't want to say the name of the company, but, uh, you know, we did kick it off and, 
I always wanted to use e-commerce. I wanted to do telemedicine. I, I didn't want to do the brick and mortar thing, uh, especially with COVID. So they agreed to start in that space because of everything that was going on. And then, um, you know, I wanted to bring in social media for marketing. And, you know, it was an uphill battle. They didn't believe in it. So eventually, we found an influencer that we really liked. And, um, you know, we were able to work a deal. So um, once they started promoting for us, it, it, it took off very quickly. Um, the person that was financially backing it, once they saw that it, it was turning the corner, making money profitable um, into the millions, uh, essentially just locked everybody out. And, you know, gave everybody the, the, the opportunity to, to sue him for, you know, shareholder oppression and then, you know, take their buyout. And that is essentially what everybody did. You know, and that process took months. And, you know, at that point I was still working a full-time job and, you know, I was fairly depressed. You know, I kind of was going back into that self-loathing area. And my wife just kind of looked at me one day in the kitchen. She's like, you're going to do it again. So just do it again. Just go and do it. She's like, this time call it Transcend. You know, kind of joking because it was a play on the other company. And I was like, hmm. I went down right right then, right there and then. I went right down to the basement to my office area, filed the articles of incorporation. Um, first thing I did was talk to one of my uh, business colleagues, and I said, hey, you know, I'd like to trade you a percentage of equity to, you know, go in on this company with me if you'll build a website and do all the technical stuff in the background because they were a developer and did all that stuff. And uh, they, they agreed. And then I went to the other two business partners that were kind of, you know, had the same experience. And I'm like, hey, do you, you know, what do you think about this? I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it the way I wanted to do it. You know, I'm looking for a little bit of seed money. You want to invest in all this other stuff. <laughs> yes, right away. So um, I found a gentleman that was a competitor of mine and, you know, worked out a deal with him, got him brought over. And at that point, you know, he had a small book of business. So that kind of got the company started, got all of us things established. And then uh, we started the hunt for influencers and we ended up getting a call with Jason Poston. Um, you know, he, he had spoken to one of our employees that had reached out to him and, you know, for whatever reason, he, he just said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll give him a shot. I'll listen to him, which was odd because he had so many people contacting him, you know, throughout you know his career that just to take us randomly, you know, it wasn't normal, <laughs> but, um, you know, I told him the story. I told him what had happened. And, you know, he asked me, well, why are you doing this? And I said, well, for a multitude of reasons, but to break it down, one, it changed my life. And I know I can change others. And I know I can do something good with it. Um, I know at some point, if the business grows well enough, I'll be able to um, build a legacy, hand something down, um, you know, be there for, you know, the families of people that are working there, shareholders. Uh, you know, start a charity, all that kind of stuff. Um, but mostly it'll give me roots and stability and I won't have to deploy or travel or do all these other things. I can actually see my family. I haven't seen them in, you know, forever. This My career has been essentially leaving. Uh, and that meant something to me. It really did. Um, so I was shocked because the way in the structure that we did the contract was kind of like pay to play like if the more he did the better he did the better the company did you know and it was based on kind of like a commission kind of a thing um at the end of it 
you know, he ended up basically becoming one of our partners. You know, he he helped us find other connections and, and grow the company. You know, shortly after meeting with him, we met with Steve Weatherford. Uh, he was a, a former punter for the New York Giants. You know, as a, a NFL fittest man. You know, two times. I mean, guys in his forties and just still to this day is is absolutely yoked. It's ridiculous. I don't know how he does it. Well, I do, but I won't say. <laughs> um, you know. So they were all about that kind of lifestyle too, like the health optimization and wellness and, you know, taking, you know, control of your health and putting it in the patient's hands versus working within the traditional means of things, which is more reactive. You know, you're not, you're not necessarily stopping things from happening. You're just taking another medication to stop one thing, but then, you know, you get a different problem. You know, a lot of people think that's by design, you know, I'm not going to share my opinion on it, but obviously I um I like the pro the proactive and preventative approach uh, personally. So you know once we started having patients come in, we were you know just focusing on education. But you know I think with Jason and Steve telling their stories and explaining just how it helped them um, and why it was better for you know people in the industry, especially the bodybuilding industry, where we really cut our teeth. You know because so many competitors were dying so young from abusing steroids to know that one you could do it legally with blood work and you could do it in a manner in a way where you were just optimizing your your levels but you weren't necessarily you know you weren't taking tons and tons of gear you know where you get an acne and roid rage all these other things people that don't understand is over a certain dose it's not doing anything anyways it's just giving you side effects it's just hurting you it's not helping it's not going to do anything if you bring those down to the levels where they're supposed to be or slightly above, you know, where the high average is at, um, it's going to do basically the same thing. It just takes a little longer time, but it's, it's still going to happen. You're still going to be at your peak. Uh, so they like the idea of being able to promote something that was going to stop people from harm, harming themselves and then obviously help them feel better and put things in their control. So they agreed. And once they did, you know, it just, it grew. You know, and then another influencer would hear their story and say, hey, I, I kind of like to do that, too. And then another one, you know, now I believe we're at about 40 athletes that we're working with. And, you know, the company grew from four people in my basement to 70 people uh, as of today. And we uh, just signed a lease for uh, 30,000 square feet here. So. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, I want to kind of walk through the, the the kind of genesis of this therapy first becoming you know available and then and then carry on forward to all the kind of pillars of health that that you guys address my exposure to this was actually with the interview with kirk parsley as a navy seal term physician um sleep medicine is a big area that he focuses on but he was talking about the the kind of uh creation of this spectrum where your testosterone should be and i, f- I always forget where it is i think it was an ivy league school area in the northeast but where they got that range from was the you know 950 was the 18 year old high school football player dripping you know testosterone and semen and then you had the you know the whatever it was 2250 was the 80 year old sedentary dude in the same town so up until very recently, a lot of, you know, myself, and a lot of peers, if we did get blood work done that showed test, they would be told, oh, you're 300, you're fine. Well, this would be a 25-year-old firefighter that shouldn't be at 250 or 300. 
So for the longest time, you know, I was having this conversation that, look, you know, figure out where you should actually be. You know, if you're if you're in your 30s, you know, then I would argue if a 950 is a 18 year old, you know, stud, then in your 30s, you should at least be in the five, sixes at least, you know, so if it's way below that. But then the pendulum swung all the way the other way. And now all of a sudden men's clinics, and I'm doing air quote, showed up everywhere. And now I was having 25, 30 year old firefighter friends immediately walk in there and boom, they're on testosterone. Now it's not the same one that maybe had the low ones or, or if they did, but there was no discussion on on nutrition, on sleep, on on weight training and all these things that can naturally stimulate that you would do before then saying, okay, you're a good fit for TRT. These are the options and this is how you can do it. So Talk to me about that first, just just the the industry that you've seen through your eyes. You know, obviously we're going to talk about Transcend. There's a reason why we're having this discussion because I think people should know the good companies. But what what have you seen as far as that predatorial element as well? Well, the predatory element is is pretty clear, right? There's sex cells. They're going to use that. Um, you know, the glory days, all those things, and they're they're going to make it very easy for you to get on testosterone. Um, easy is never a good way to uh, accomplish a goal, in my opinion. Um, you know, there should be a little bit more thought put in something, especially when it comes into hormones. What they don't understand is when they go on a hormone, you're going on a hormone for life. If you're replacing your body's natural ability to create testosterone and you're replacing with something synthetic, um, you know, that's that's what your body's used to at this point, and, and that's what it's going to carry on to do. Um, sometimes you can, into a certain level, you know, reignite natural test and there's methods of doing it but it's only going to be to a certain extent and it's probably going to be around the level you were at before um it's it's most likely not going to increase where you were at um but once you go on testosterone essentially you should be able to you need to stay on it um and that's one thing i think that's a real um, difference in the good clinics and the ones that are a little bit more predatory is explaining to everybody what these things really mean and what they do and the dosage and levels and everything. And our approach is a little different, you know, 950, you know, 850, 650, 1,000. It depends on a few things. First, let's talk about the symptoms before we talk the numbers. You know, my number, your number might be different and it could be based on age, it could be based on metabolism, it could be based on body weight, it could be based on how I want to feel versus how you want to feel. And the blood work helps us find that number where that is where you're feeling good. And also, we're not affecting other issues where your hemoglobin is through the roof, um, you know, your AST levels or, you know, kidney functionality, liver functionality is, is starting to have, you know, other problems. You know, you're losing hair. Some of those things are are, are going to happen. And there's times when you have to titrate down, um, you know, if you end up taking too much. But the thing that is, if you're monitoring the blood, like a good clinic would tell you to, then you'll see those things happening and before it becomes a problem you're lowering that dose and you're you're you know backing it way down and i'll tell you this much um our physician you know he's never gonna authorize a dose that is considered more than therapeutic and that that's where you need to be about 200 milligrams a week you know in a split dose or you know in a multiple split doses is about the max you know, a male of most ages is going to be able to handle without a side effect. And any more than that, I would, I would have to argue against. Um, and, you know, that's not even where 
most clinics start that are doing this, you know, in the right way. They're also talking again about nutrition and lifestyle and those other things, giving the patient all the information to understand, you know, what their options are. Um, you know, they talk about HCG, they'll talk about enclomaphene, they'll, you know, talk about their sleep and, and, you know, mood and diet patterns and, you know, other, you know, comorbidities, you know, things that could be going on that, you know, people aren't looking at. You have to look at the entire body, you know, all of the systems. Everything affects everything, essentially. So you go in and just to get testosterone, you get it and you leave, you're probably not at one of the better clinics. Um, if they're charging you per shot, you're not a, at a good clinic. Um, you know, if you don't see the physician, like as in on a Zoom and talk to them, you're you're not at, you know, a good clinic. You need to be able to at least see their PA, you know, nurse, nurse practitioner. Um, you, there should be a, a, a major blood panel breakup with all of your hormones, um, plus all the base, you know, testing. Uh, usually we do like a new patient form, just like you would in any other physician's office. You know, you get that 10 page packet and you got to fill out your health, medical history, you know, and then go into your goals and other things that you're trying to accomplish and, you know, take all that information, interview the patient. And then, you know, at that point, walk them through the process and see what they want to do, and where their priorities are. And that's essentially what we do. That's how we, you know, take it from the intake document where somebody makes contact with us until they get the medication. You know, they have to go through all those wickets. You know, they're going to talk to one of our patient care advocates. They're going to talk to, you know, physician or physician's assistant. The blood work's going to be done. You know, we're going to have done a review and then we're going to make a recommendation. Um, by all the options, too, because there's so many options between peptides and some of the bioidenticals, you know, you could have 40 options. We're not saying you should do 40 of them. We're just saying these medications do certain things and these are all the things that you could do depending on what you think would be best for you and your budget because it's private pay um, we don't accept insurance and we do that for a reason um, medicare and medicaid guidelines are very constringent and when you are taking insurance you need to fall in the u.s with certain regulations and laws and it takes away from the ability for a patient to put the care in their hands so you know in this case, private pay was the right way for us to to approach it. Um, but once they've made the decision, you know, that's that's what we're going to support. You know, we're going to take that order. And we have um, several compounding pharmacies in the U.S. that we work with. We have a couple that we really closely partnered with and use for the, the main um, source. But if they're, you know, if they're out of medication or, you know, they're going through inspections or things like that, sometimes we have to shift. Um, there's different regulatory um, restrictions in states. So sometimes we need to go to a, a specific pharmacy to ship a medication to a specific state. So there's a lot of logistics that are tied in this too. So that's the other thing to be worried about and, and understand, you know, when you're going to a clinic, you know, where are they sourcing their medications that are going to be sent to you and how are they going to be sent? Are they overnight cold pack or are they, you know, going USPS, you know, um, you know, there's, there's a few things there to look at, uh, and good questions to ask. Um, all of our stuff is, you know, sent overnight cold pack, unless it's, uh, lyophilized, which is powder form, which has to be reconstituted. Most of the peptides are like that. Um, so they're heat tolerant and they're not necessarily as, um, you know, constringent on the time. So we, we don't have to overnight them, but there's a lot of medications that do need to be done that way. 
but we made sure to go through and find the pharmacies that are compounding and sending to the patients, you know, as we've ordered it for them. So the medication is basically made at the time the patient is ordering it versus, you know, sitting on a shelf, um, you know, just waiting to go out at a standard pharmacy. You know, we've gone through and we've seen their FDA inspections. You know, we've seen their, you know, proof that they got their uh, raw materials from an FDA approved source. You know, we've seen the facilities where the filtration systems are up and running, they're clean rooms. You know, we still go back and ask them to send sample products to third party independent testing and, and make sure that the potency, the, you know, bioavailability, the, you know, stableness of the medication, all those things are being looked at and, and done randomly. So, you know, we can't, uh, just tell them on next Tuesday to have a batch ready for us, um, you know, because we, we do care because these are medications myself and my staff use just the same. So obviously we want them to be, you know, just as good for us as they are for our patients. But those are all things that um, good clinics do. And those are the those are the ones you want to go to, the ones that are doing it right. So Brendan was telling me as well, when you've done this questionnaire, there is an element of... Uh of counseling when it comes to your nutrition, your sleep, et cetera. Cause I think this is a big, uh, sticking point in the fire service. If we get the firefighters work week to where it should be in the U S they would have a lot more time to recover. And I think some of them would self-regulate at least when they were younger with their hormones. Yeah. So, you know, but the problem is that they don't at the moment, like the County that, that protects where I live now, they're on 56 hours a week and a lot of times getting mandatory forced to stay another one. So they're on sometimes 80 hour work weeks. So mm -hmm. to tell those men and women, oh, you just need more sleep. Well, yeah, but sometimes they're not able to get it. The TBIs, obviously the combat athletes, the military, the law enforcement, that's another area where it seems like the self-regulation starts to, to kind of fall away. But having that, diagnosis element first of well you know have you have you changed your diet have you done this have you done that it's still not working or i'm just not able to because of my work schedule well then for the, especially the younger um male or female now you've given them a tool okay i'm not i'm just going to be in this this chaos you know for another five ten years okay now i can make a decision i understand ideally i'd be able to do x y and z but i'm not in this work environment so now here's a tool i can use in the in the interim yeah, um, spot on, especially in, in those fields. Uh, there's no opportunity really to try anything else. Uh, so this is really the only option. Um, so obviously going to the right place is what's important. But the um, the interview aspect of that and the guidance, those questions are obviously going to be asked first. You know, and even more questions too. Um, you know, for men, we're going to ask them about their fertility and their family planning and what they want to do. Um, because there's an element there too that's a risk you know they need to know and understand and have full informed consent on the impacts of things um you know there are things we can do and medications we can use in tandem to protect you know fertility and you know even in some cases increase the potential fertility um we can do some things in that area we can assist males uh not so much in the in the female arena but there's you know things that we have to ask, you know, and it, it's beyond even just the diet, nutrition and lifestyle. It's like I said before, you realize that this is a medication you're going to need to be on essentially for the rest of your life. Um, are you okay with that? Um, do you understand and know that by taking this, um, you're shutting down any natural production that you have and this could affect your fertility and it will affect your fertility. Um, so as much of the benefits as it's going to have, um, and the situation they're in, they still need to know those other potential effects that are that are going to happen regardless. 
Absolutely. And I think that's what, you know, most people would appreciate. It's just an informed decision. You know, now you have all the tools because as you said, I mean, you get atrophy of the testes. I mean, it's a, that's a one way street then. Your, your test is only going to get worse and worse and worse. But, you know, you can plan. All right. Well, I'm not going to do it for another six months. So we're going to try, you know, try and get pregnant. But sadly, I think I see a lot of infertility in my profession, for example, because of the shift work, because of the sleep deprivation. So again, you know, maybe they've been trying for five years. Maybe, as you said, this with a combination of something else might actually work this time. So it's a, it's, but again, you give a family all these tools so they can make an informed decision. Now, you know, they, they've got all the information they need versus, as you said, walking into a clinic, being told, yeah, choose from the board. Yeah, that's 600 bucks, please. We'll see you, see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, uh, that's that's the whole point too. Um, that's why we ask the question. So you do want to have children, okay? Well, then I'm going to recommend to you, even though it's going to be you know a few hundred dollars more, and I understand that's expensive, but this is going to protect your fertility, you know. So we're recommending you take this along with this, or no one understand the risk that maybe that's not an opportunity for you now, but you know when you are able to, we should add this in, you know, those kind of things, and obviously for you know firefighters, first responders, veterans, that kind of thing. Um, you know, we discount the meds. And when it comes down to, um, you know, those that were, you know, wounded or have other issues, you know, significant issues and, and need real help, you know, that's where our charity Transcend Foundation comes in, you know, the 50C3. And um, we're able to, you know, essentially donate what we can in order to support those individuals to get through whatever they need to. And I know you mentioned uh, TBI, uh, and that's a, an important, important, um, you know, systemic issue, especially in the military, you know, where, you know, a lot of the SF guys, you know, just through even training and you know, everything else they've done, you know, they've had exposure to, you know, detonations, you know, weekly. And those things are like a concussion every time and it's going to add up, let alone anybody who's been in an IAD or any other type of uh, traumatic event, like a rollover or, or, you know, God only knows. But we have some medications that are showing um, real promise in helping reverse or repair some of the damage. It's way too early to tell. And I will never say that it's a miracle drug and it's going to do anything. But there is a drug, Dihexa, and it is a uh, peptide. Uh, It's a oral medication. And it is initially uh, created for Alzheimer's and dementia, but it's to improve the cognitive functionality. Uh, it repairs damaged brain cells, essentially. Um, you know, there's limitations to everything. So we can't say, again, that it's, it's going to heal and fix anyone. But for those that had um, low to mild um, TBI issues that have come to us and have taken the medication long term, um, you know, more than six months, close to a year, you know, they were starting to see that they're they're seeing improvement in their, you know, their uh, day-to-day life, uh, quality of life. And at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is improve people's quality of life. You know, like I said, we can't reverse age. We can't cure disease. But, you know, in a lot of the cases, we can optimize health and we can reverse some of the symptoms that people are, you know, are feeling. So we focus on that. Well, I want to get to the foundation because it's a very evident altruistic you know arm to not only your company but you yourself as a human being but just before we do 2020 obviously this all happens when covid when uh you know we go through the covid pandemic some interesting things have come out of that one of them that i've talked about on here before is integrating emed with 911 
and allowing some of these patients to, t to interact directly with an ER physician, which then negates the need for an ambulance if it's a lower acuity call. What impact did the the uh, pandemic have on on e-medicine when it comes to Transcend and, and the ability for people all over the country to be able to access you as a, as a company? It had a tremendous impact, and I think it drove all of our growth, to be quite frank, um, because we were giving people healthcare options in a manner where they could do it from their home, mostly. Um, really, the only time you have to go outside of the home is to actually go to a lab core request diagnostics facility that we are partnered with in order to get the blood drawn. But beyond that, it's done through Zoom and phone call, and you know the medications are shipped to the home directly, um, and they're self-administered. That was a very attractive option for a lot of people, but even more so. And, you know, I don't have an opinion on it one way or other, but a lot of people become skeptical of traditional medicine, especially with the uh, the shots and the vaccines and all those other things. So they don't trust the medications, you know, on traditional medicine as much as they used to in the past. And a lot of them are looking for other options. They're looking for an alternative. Um, and we came in at the time where we were talking about preventative healthcare, and you know, in a way, we were trying to focus on education, and you know, a less is more approach, and you know, how to improve quality of life, and that's what a lot of people are looking for. You know, they don't want to get sick, especially when you know they see people dying from things that are getting you know getting them sick. They want to improve their immunity, that kind of thing. Um, so we were just there at the right time, and uh, we were available where others weren't. And I think that had a, a massive impact. So talk to me about the foundation. I met Brendan out on 7X, which was the uh, incredible round the world. Let's see if we can completely destroy human beings and rebuild them <laughs> <laughs> project that we were on. Um, Ryan Parrott. And again, that the genesis of that was his uh, sniper partner's suicide, David Metcalf. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're making the book now, we're making a documentary about this. And ultimately, um, not only is it going to raise some money for some nonprofits, more importantly, it's going to share a lot of information on all the different holistic elements to a lot of the dark places that people find themselves and the way to find yourself out through nutrition, exercise, mindfulness, and all these other areas. Um, but you, and I'll pull it out of the shadows, you were absolutely imperative in that going ahead it was a very last minute thing and you were extremely generous and made a massive donation to make sure that that 7x project went ahead so talk to me about you know the importance of altruism your kind of social but business model and then let's talk about the foundation as you touched on you know who you're trying to help through that well talking about the the social aspect of the the company i mean that's just the way we're able to get out to um you know a larger you know, massive uh, people that, you know, are, are listening to people they trust. And, and that was the, the attractiveness to it was to, to find a way to focus on education and in an area that we knew people were suffering. And honestly, it, that was bodybuilding and fitness where people were, you know, abusing medications to start. So I took the approach of if we're going to help people improve their quality of life, we need to first stop people from screwing it up. <laughs> so Let's let's start where the problem might uh, begin in this area. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, from my wife being a competitor and other things, it was just kind of a natural place to start. Um, and, and that's just really where we grew, th grew from. But the military and everything around it, obviously, and all the tragedies and, you know, 22 a day and mental health, all, all of it, you know, 
it's always, you know, in the back of, you know, my mind, it's always sitting there. It's, you know, it's just something I, I hate to hear about and hate to see. Um, so when I met Brendan, you know, and I had found out his story and he's got his own story, a hell of a story. Um, I tell you what, the one thing that really drove me quickly to wanting to start the foundation is I didn't want a guy to have to go back overseas again. I really didn't. Um, I saw a family man who really wanted to get something done and do some good. And I was right at that point in time where we could have started a foundation. So instead of him going back, I wanted to offer him a job. And, uh, you know, that's that's really how it started. You know, we were aligned, like-minded, uh, had the very same outlook and how to approach these things. And, uh, you know, it was kind of one of those things where I knew if I didn't, you know, do it now, if I did it even in two weeks, you know, he'll probably be back on a contract or off doing something. And I just didn't want to see that happen again. Um, so we started it and, uh, you know, he had known Ryan or had met him uh, through all of his connections because he's, he's got a massive network. Um, but you know, when I found out about 7X, it took me about 10 seconds to say that we were, that we were in. Um, and I love the idea of raising the awareness and what it was for and what it represented and why Ryan was doing it importantly. Um, and I, I, I like the fact that there's going to be science behind it. And the idea would be to prevent things like this from happening in the future. Why, why wouldn't you help there? Why wouldn't you jump on that? Um, you know, so for me, it was an instant decision. And, you know, I, I felt very strongly about it. So when I found out that, um, you know, Ryan needed some help, thank God we were able to. Um, and being able to and, and knowing what I knew, it was felt like a duty and a responsibility. And I just wanted to make sure that that went forward. You know, to me personally, I felt like it was an important project and the world would be a better place with it being, you know, completed. So, yeah, well, again, for, for people listening, it was a very substantial amount of money. We won't put <laughs> figures out there, but it was a extremely generous donation that was really the difference between 7X going ahead and not. So I just want to add that. So talk to me about the foundation that now now you're, you know, you're basically almost done setting it up. You touched on it before, you know. How is it funded? And then who are you helping with that foundation specifically? So um, the plan to fund it is the same way we actually grew the company. We want to work with our social media um, partners and our athletes and those that support the military. Uh, I'd like to you know, talk to a few more in the military community that have a platform where they're able to reach out to people um, and, you know, again, bring awareness. But the, the idea behind uh, the Transcend Foundation mostly is to utilize our medications and to uh, make sure that we're able to help as many veterans and first responders, firefighters, law enforcement that we can. Um, you know, in addition to that, we want to take the approach a little differently than, you know, others in the past. There's thousands of charities out there that focus in one specific area. They do it really well. Um, problem is people, humans have multiple issues and one affects the other. So one charity alone isn't really going to, you know, cure the person and their ailments and everything they need. We want to develop a mesh network where we're partnered with other charities that are focused in areas that we can't touch on specifically, but can support each other. So um, Transcend Foundation originally was self-funded through Transcend Company. And then we've had some private donors and, you know, we were working towards getting into the um, electronic donation, you know, more small donor types of donation. Um, so we're getting ready to launch that. But as we've been kind of building the process and building the thing and we've taken on 
you know, a certain number of patients that the company can afford to, you know, essentially carry and take care of. We uh, wanted to fund other partnered um, charities as much as we could to keep those organizations going and doing the good and establish those relationships. So that's what we've been doing up to this point. And I believe since last September until now, we've donated almost a million, you know, through those efforts. Now, we kind of didn't get into all the the positive side effects of testosterone replacement therapy, if that's the route that, you know, is the right fit for you. So just talk to me about some of the the success stories, because I know in, in this conversation or in this, excuse me, this podcast, some of the conversations it like you said, it wasn't the only thing, but it was one of the tools that took people from some very dark places mentally back to feeling yep. good again. The most important thing that Transcend can do on the mental health side is going through and finding out where hormones are with that that veteran or that patient, so we can get them balanced out again. Therapies are amazing, but they're only effective if you're in the right space, in the right mind. And if you're not able to to be receptive to any sort of treatment, it's going to be hard for the treatment to take effect. Um, going through and, like I said, getting the blood work, finding out their levels, and getting them back to a base number where they feel good again, and it gives them hope. And the first thing you can do to help somebody is give them hope. Uh, and that has a dramatic effect on, you know, somebody's outlook and somebody's receptiveness to change where especially they were feeling in a spot where they didn't have that before. So, you know, from us, the greatest thing we can do is, is provide that. And then we have a lot of healing medications, peptides, things like that. Like I said, with the cognitive ability of dihexa, uh, BPC-157, you know, that, that's going to help with, you know, damaged tissues and, you know, ligaments, tendons, that kind of thing. Um, you know, you combine a couple of those things together with testosterone and you've really made a, a significant impact on somebody's life and quality of life. And now you are turning that um, patient over to one of your partner um, charities that's going to go ahead and do the MDR or do the uh, psychedelic type of, um, you know, treatments for mental health. And it works. It actually works. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's, that's how we've been able to, you know, kind of approach things. We're kind of the start, the triage, so to speak, in the ER, and then uh, we're handing it off to, you know, wherever from that point they would need the most help. Beautiful. I mean, it makes sense. You know, it's not just psychology, it's physiology as well. And if, if your hormones yeah. are completely crashed, then if you're not addressing that, it doesn't matter how much meditation you do, you're not going to be able to change your physiology. Yeah, you're too tired to meditate. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't have that hope, if you don't have that physical energy, you don't feel like you can make a change. Um, it's hard to mentally work through that. But I mean, when you talk about testosterone, you're improving their sleep, you know, you're improving their energy, libido. So just from those things alone, you know, and hoping to regulate some of the mood swings, all of that right there, that can impact not only that person's quality of life, but, you know, married families of the whole family dynamic, you know, you just improve the, everyone's quality of life by helping that person you know, improve their quality of life, you know, and then if you add, like I said, some of the things that heal some of the injuries physically, you know, where they didn't think maybe they would be able to before, because these are medications that are not being used to the VA or even traditional medicine, and they're helping, um, you know, inflammation is going down, pain is going away, mobility is coming back, tissues are being repaired, cognitive functionality is being restored, you know, sleep cycles are, are resetting, you know, that's about as good as you can get, um, at least within our capabilities. And then adding in the mental health uh, stability piece of that and getting them to the right, 
you know, team afterwards, and you know, obviously continue on treatments that they're in. You know, it's I I believe that's the only way to go. Yeah. No. Well, like you said, I think hope is the exact word. You know, you're addressing yeah. all the things at the same time. It was a family's hope too. Well, exactly. Yeah, because they're the ones that deal with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's a good term too. They do deal with us. So I want to be mindful of your time. I just want to throw some quick closing questions at you. The first one is, is there a book or other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. There's so many out there. Um, I, honestly, I, I wish I had just one that I, I could, uh, but uh, not at this point. Yeah, no problem. What about films and documentaries? Uh, so it's a documentary, and um, it's one that kind of hit home for me. Uh, Restrepo, you know, it talks about, uh, you know, an actual army medic that was a, you know, attached to an infantry company and, uh, you know, their, their time through, you know, an Afghanistan deployment and, you know, he's killed in the, uh, you know, in that deployment, but you can see the brotherhood, you can see the camaraderie, you understand and see what people are going through, but the mental anguish that the soldiers go through at that point in time, exactly um it really gets you front and center to what they experience and what they come home with and what that weight looks like um so that would be one i would recommend that you watch and um you know understanding there'll be a heavy impact sebastian young has been on here i think it's three times now he's coming back on in a couple of months but uh speaking of books have you read tribe that he wrote I, uh, I have it on my read list. You got to um, read it. Absolutely got to okay, read it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, it's on my, it's on my read list. Yeah. No, I mean, you take that, the observation from Restrepo, but then you add in, he goes into kind of tribalism in a positive way and some of the stories from the Native American communities. But then, you know, you've got that cohesion during combat. And then when it's the loss of tribe, when people are going to go home, that's when they see a lot of the unraveling. So it's a really interesting perspective, not only for the military, but first responders too. Yeah. Uh, Brendan, you know, when we were talking about this, you know, I say mesh network, but the first thing he said was tribe, you know, to we're rebuilding a tribe. Um, so a different approach to the term, but, you know, definitely the same kind of mentality where, you know, we have to band together to get to the same kind of uh, result. Well, the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I have met so many people in the last two years. Yeah, I absolutely. Um, Robert Wilkins. I would, I would, I would, Rob is just a man among men. Um, and I mean that in the most heartfelt way I can possibly put, he is empathetic, compassionate, intelligent, and he has worked, um, in multiple administrations on the president's council for nutrition and fitness to, you know, better the lives of, you know, soldiers, airmen, you know, Marines, um, in, any way he can, you know, they look at everything from what the military is doing to, you know, how they're feeding him, you name it. Um, but he's a big proponent of things that we could do better. Uh, I think he would be an amazing addition to the people you've interviewed. Beautiful. Yeah. Brendan actually did suggested him before and, and with the military side and like you said, the, um, the wellness side combined, I think it would be an amazing conversation. So if you guys are able to help, we'll definitely make that happen. 
Uh, we absolutely will. He's, um, you know, on the board of directors for our foundation. So I'll be reaching out to him today. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, then yeah, the cool. last question before everyone knows where to find Transcend and yourself online, what do you do to decompress? I spend time with my kids and my wife. Um, I do. Uh, I, uh, I like to ride four-wheelers around a property and, and just see my eight-year-old son, you know, try to figure it all out and, and just be there. Um, I like to play video games, stupid as that sounds, play guitar, you know, just the things that, you know, I did when we were younger that just helped me take my mind off of things. But the, the most important thing is just taking that 10-second pause in the day when it's nice and quiet in the morning. Uh, before the day starts, you know, and I just kind of sit out and grab my coffee and take that breath. And I'm blessed to have some property to look at that, um, you know, is calming. And, you know, I do that every day. Total tangent, right before we close out. As a parent now, you lost a brother when you were a very small child. How did that influence your parenting and how are you able to to not put steel apron strings on your own children because of the fear of the tragedy you experienced as a child? Honestly, I probably put steel strings on to a certain extent to the, to as much as my wife would let me. Um, Cause you know, she, she has a different upbringing and, you know, has a much softer touch and, you know, I, I thank God for that. Uh, if it wasn't for her soft touch with me, I don't know that I would have ever, you know, been able to be where I am today. In fact, I, I know I wouldn't, but, um, you know, as time's gone on and I've had a little bit of time to be a dad, you know, I've, I've also realized that the world, you know, is always going to be a dangerous place. Um, and there's only so much you can do to protect your kids. But the best thing you can do to protect your kids is sometimes you got to let them fail. You got to let them fall. You got to let them play. You got to let them do those things to learn the lessons, you know, to be safe. So, you know, I've, I've kind of had to try to balance those things out, you know, that and build a moat. But, yeah, it's a hard thing. A lot of people listening to this, you know, we see that at work. You know, we see the the horrific accidents, and you know, it it does kind of play into your mind when you're with your own child, and it is that kind of tug of war between being responsible and educating them on risks and everything, but also, as you said, allowing them to be their own child and not this puppet that you're taking through eighteen years of their life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, like I said, I try to involve them so. Yeah, you know, being able to spend time with them is great, but you know, can't be there all the time. So they have to, they have to be able to figure it out for themselves. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure people are really wanting to listen, you know, learn a lot more about Transcend. Obviously, access it, maybe do a, do an initial interview themselves, see what's what's available for them, what might be a good fit. So, firstly, where are the best places to find Transcend online? So, one of the easiest places to go is to our Instagram account, and that's uh, at Transcend HRT. Um, you'll find us big blue T is the envelope that you'll see right there. There's a link to the intake document. The intake form only takes about 15 to 20 seconds to fill out. And usually the same day, sometimes within 10 minutes, but definitely within the same day, uh, you'll have one of our wellness specialists, which is our patient advocate, and they're going to contact you back. Um, if you don't have social media, um, you can find us at, you know, transcendcompany.com. And, you know, that's the same thing. Very easy. You're going to find the link right on the web page. Uh, and we're right there. Uh, you can look us up as well. And if you just want to talk to a human being, you can call the main line, tell them you're interested, and they'll transfer you over to a wellness specialist and they'll fill everything with you on the phone. So whatever is most convenient and easiest for you, uh, we're easy to find. 
Beautiful. And then what about yourself individually? Any places on social media? Uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, that's just EW Calling. Uh, that's, you know, first first middle initial and last name. Uh, wasn't that creative, you know, but uh, if you want to follow it, you know, I'll be blessed to have you. Beautiful. Well, Ernie, I want to say thank you so, so much. I mean, the conversation, the vulnerability, and we talked before we hit record, this is something that people, especially men, need to hear. I mean, I've had so many people that have been courageous in their service, whether it's first responders, military, or other professions, but have been so courageously uh, vulnerable as well and talking about you know the struggles and, and some of the things that happened when they were younger, for example. I think it's important. But then what you've done with Transcend, bringing these products um, in a way that you know, they're trustworthy and people can be educated and as you said be told okay these are the pros these are the cons you know and and allow people to make an educated decision with a veteran-owned company that i can put my hand on my heart and say is an altruistic social business as well um it's been an honor talking to you today so thank you so much for coming on the show thank you james it was an absolute pleasure i appreciate it